hey everyone uh yeah i'm just uh, very excited to be here thank you for uh inviting me uh james and marco um yeah so actually i'm very excited to present kind of these uh overall set of findings and uh uh kind of like paradigm uh to you to you guys because yeah i mean i think it's kind of like a a, a new angle on the psychedelic experience and i'm very excited to see what you guys think so um first of all uh, to kind of contextualize this, I mean, I'm sure all of you are already sold on the importance of studying these exotic states of consciousness, but uh, just kind of like, okay, for, for those who are newcomers in a way, there is a, a, a very, you know, fundamental reason why exotic states of consciousness are really foundational. And that is uh, with an analogy to physics, that like, if your theories of, you know, the physical world of matter and energy uh, kind of like end and start at a uh, room temperature, uh, but you don't make predictions about what's going to happen, you know, at high temperatures, at super low temperature, you know, exotic materials, metamaterials, things like that, then you only really have kind of like a sliver of a theory, right? Like you have something that kind of like works in practice within your domain, but you don't actually have a fundamental understanding of matter and energy, right? Like if, if, you, if you claim to have a fundamental understanding of matter and energy, you should be able to, you know, predict what is happening, you know, around a black hole, or the connection between, you know, a, a compass and uh, and uh, and magnets and electricity and lightning and so on. And uh, in the most extreme kind of uh, exotic case, you know, like something like uh, superfluid helium, like what happens to helium really close to zero Kelvin, really weird things, right? So, um, in a sense, if you want to have a full theory of physics, you really have to, you know, pay attention to what happens in these exotic, exotic circumstances. And likewise, uh, yeah, in the case of consciousness, I, I think uh, if your theory of consciousness, let's say of social cognition or visual perception works within normal parameters, but, you know, doesn't actually make predictions for, uh, I don't know, like <laughs> 5-MeO DMT or something like that, then yeah, it's, I wouldn't say it's a foundational, you know, like complete theory. So, okay. So with that said, um, there is kind of like a, a niche or like a, um, uh, a lot of, I, I could say, kind of like room for growth when it comes to psychedelic epistemology uh, in the world. I mean, like both in academia and like outside of it. So, I mean, in, in some sense, we could kind of like break down the various paradigms that uh, currently exist into kind of two buckets, <laughs> which would be like one and two here. So the first bucket is kind of like this... Um, third-person scientific studies uh, where essentially you give a, a whole lot of people, you know, various kinds of substances or various kinds of like mind, you know, alteration uh, uh, interventions. Uh, and then you give them questionnaires or, or you do psychophysics with them or, you know, kind of like word analysis of how, you, how they describe the experience. Um, but there is like one very obvious kind of like glaring problem with this paradigm, which is that you're actually... Uh, not utilizing information optimally, you know, because a lot of what actually um, generates kind of like useful interpretations in science is kind of a back and forth and a collaboration, cross-checking, uh, cross-pollination. So uh, for the most part, nowadays, you know, scientific studies are not kind of like asking participants to talk with one another about what went to during their experience, right? It's kind of like they're each in kind of like a parallel track. There's almost kind of this sense of a, if they were to talk to each other, you would be contaminating the data. But, you know, in, in, to some extent, you know, actually, it, it might be really necessary for actually, like, helpful processing of what actually went on. Um, the second kind of approach that we are familiar with is kind of this individual explorer, which is like, okay, somebody goes into the deep end, somebody like uh, John Lilly or... Um, like, um, you know, Timothy Larry, Terrence McKenna, people, people of that sort. Um, and uh, that's great because you can actually go really deep, but there is uh, definitely some disadvantages. I mean, one of them is that it can kind of like, if you have compromised, you know, epistemic rationality, like, okay, you're going to go very deep into some kind of um, confirmation bias about like what's going on here. You know, kind of like think of uh, John Lilly's Earth Coincidence Control Office. I mean, I'm not saying <laughs> I'm confident that he's, you know, wrong about there being like, yeah, some kind of a, uh, Earth coincidence uh, control office, but it, it does seem quite unlikely, and it does seem like he probably would have benefited from kind of like some, you know, cross-checking and, and, and cross-pollination of ideas with other people, like also going into the defense. So 
uh, with that, there's kind of like the, the, the niche that is absent uh, that we hope to actually fulfill would be this uh, think tank model. So essentially, when you have smart, introspective individuals in a critical mass where they're actually kind of interacting with one another and in a sense, like processing the information of what went on in, 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 the, in the trip. And um, in, in a way, if you were to think of like deeper neural network architectures, like which of these do you think would actually be better at processing information? And yeah, I mean, I would say that, you know, it's kind of like a, a, the, the best is going to be in the balance, something like the, the think tank model. Okay, so um, kind of like think about that as I go through the presentation. So now uh, I will go into um, essentially giving you some context for where you know, do we come from? <laughs> kind of like the history of, of, uh, of uh, these ideas at QRI. So QRI really started as kind of a collection of blogs, you know, quality computing, open theory, uh, neurotic <laughs> gradient descent. And, uh, you know, I, I write quality computing, have been doing so for something like, uh, I don't know, eight years. Um, and in 2015, I, I wrote this um, article called uh, How to Secretly Communicate with People on LSD. So essentially, I figured out that Okay, there's like this weird effect on psychedelics where essentially you get kind of a lingering images in your visual field, um, which, uh, as we will come to realize, it's actually, you know, widely known as uh, tracer effects. And then I realized like, oh my gosh, you could, in principle, uh, communicate secret information uh, to somebody who's tripping by, in a sense, like flashing images that paint a picture that you can only see if it's kind of like lingering in your visual field. Um, so ever since I, I wrote the, that article, um, I've been contacted by yeah quite a lot of people who are kind of like at the intersection of, hey, like I am interested in exotic states of consciousness and also I'm interested in what kind of information processing advantages it may have. So there's been kind of like a, a the, the brewing of a community of kind of like smart, introspective individuals ever since uh, roughly this article. Um, and since then, you know, kind of like an important kind of theoretical framework that we developed is this whole concept of algorithmic reduction, which is, okay, so like, yes, psychedelics do look really magical to, to a large extent, because you have this zoo of crazy emergent effects, you know, like if you look at Psychonaut Wiki, uh, the subjective effect index, where they try to catalog, okay, the things that can happen on a psychedelic, they will show that Okay, there's like, you know, 70 distinct, you know, visual effects, like from scenery slicing to, uh, you know, magnification cycles. There's all sorts of crazy things. Um, but what is what are the chances, you know, that we have like every single one of those, you know, emergent phenomena as like just something that is kind of encoded in the substance itself or like as a different module in our brain? Okay, so it's really unlikely. It's what, what seems much more likely is that there is a, a base set of foundational effects. And then the zoo of effects that you're actually experiencing is kind of the emergent effects of those foundational effects interacting with one another. Now, this also is kind of like applying a scientific mindset to the, to the entire enterprise. It's like, yes, you know, sure, there might be 120 different, you know, elements, <laughs> But it turns out that you can explain them in terms of, you know, pr protons and electrons and, uh, and neutrons. So something like that, I think, uh, with the uh, exotic states of consciousness, we can break them down into a few foundational effects interacting with one another. And the, the kind of like breakdown that we came up um, through a lot of conversations, a lot of back and forth. I mean, this is not like, you know, an arbitrary kind of like set. It's uh, kind of like based on really a, a lot of discussions. Um, and uh, and back and forth, it is tracers, drifting, pareidolia, and spontaneous symmetry detection. So just to kind of like briefly go through them, okay, tracer effects, if you just have kind of these, you know, uh, series of lights, they will kind of like flicker and blink and kind of like linger in your visual field. Um, drifting, it's kind of um, essentially, the way I nowadays describe it is uh, particular features of your experience um, get decoupled from the web of local binding connections <laughs> that they're usually bound to. So essentially, an eye can kind of like stop being coupled to the face to which it's attached and it kind of like drifts apart. So that is a very generalized effect and very, very dose dependent as well. Then you have a pareidolia, essentially kind of enhanced uh, pattern recognition. 
Uh, a lot of it is like hallucinatory, but you know, in principle, if you set the thresholds right, you may actually be able to get some sort of performance enhancement on some recognition tasks, or at least it's something that uh, we think it's it's quite likely. Uh, but yeah, I mean, essentially, it's kind of uh, detecting faces where where they're none, and uh, this is kind of like fairly psychedelic like <laughs> in, in in its presentation. And uh, and finally, you have this really odd effect where essentially things symmetrify and. Um, that it's especially you know statistical textures like textures that are not like just perfectly repeating they become kind of like perfectly repeating uh on a psychedelic and there's like various you know there's like variants of it uh there's kind of two-dimensional three-dimensional um these are just kind of like two examples of two-dimensional and uh, then one of the kind of like early insights <laughs> that we what that we found um, was like talking to a mathematician from MIT who actually went on a long journey of many months of exploring with um, LSD and 2CB, going into sensory deprivation and taking psychedelics and noticing the symmetries that he would uh, experience in his visual field and actually cataloging them. And, uh, you know, kind of like doing these over and over and cataloging them, it turns out that it's not just a few symmetries that you can experience as kind of the attractor points of your visual field. It seems to be the case that is all possible symmetries, what's called the, the wallpaper symmetry groups uh, in math, which are like, yeah, essentially all 17 possible symmetrical ways of tessellating a 2D space. Um, so we have at least one confirmation of these, and I mean, I suspect we can... All, you know, as science progresses, this is going to hopefully become a, a, a more well-known fact. Um, but, you know, the rabbit hole doesn't end there. Um, if you take something, yeah, really visual, really high energy like uh, DMT, well, okay, like we don't have a confirmation that all of the 230 <laughs> space groups that are called basically three-dimensional tessellations, we don't know if you can experience all of them, but, you know, everything seems to indicate that, yes, like it's very likely that when you arrive at what we call the, the crystal worlds, which is a particular level of the DMT experience, uh, where basically 3D space becomes tessellated, uh, yeah, chances are you may experience any single one of these, you know, possible mathematical configurations, uh, of which there's 230. Um, and we hypothesized uh, at a time, I think it's a reasonable hypothesis, that, you know, the very crazy exotic things that you see on psychedelics, uh, let's say these high-end kind of like worldview constructions, <laughs> like in these pictures, um, that they are actually the result of stacking together these effects. Uh, it's kind of like, okay, you have some drifting and then some tracers and they combine, and then you, you know, have pareidolia, so you see an, a face on top of it, and then it drifts and it recombines, you symmetrify it, Kind of like you can stack it all together and yeah extremely complex imagery completely bizarre phenomena happen but they all come down to these relatively simple effects interacting with one another at least that's a hypothesis for the time being okay so that's kind of some some context and background for for the way in which we we think about this so uh to just kind of uh, illustrate why in a sense we think uh the psychophysics i'm going to be presenting to you in a second um, why do they fulfill a niche that in a sense is not currently being met by standard kind of uh, academia in, in uh, uh, psych psychedelic research? Uh, and the reason is as follows. And so, and I'm not saying that this is the case in all academia, but it is kind of like a family resemblance that generally speaking, labs will tend to have these properties, uh, which is A, really like no, not much like crosstalk between participants. I mean, there really hasn't been yet kind of like a, a large study of like, yes, we got all of these participants to actually talk with one another in order to process the experience and, and see what happened. Like, as, as far as I know, that's not that's not happening in academia. Second, there tends to be, again, this is not, you know, across the board, but it's like a, a very strong tendency, uh, mostly a focus on finding impaired processing. I mean, this is like, especially the case, kind of like back in the days of the hard, you know, the, 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 the hardcore war and drugs, and, uh, and the reason is, yes, okay, let's scare kids by finding all the ways in which LSD impairs your information processing skills. Like, okay, but what about like the, the, the more interesting question, which is like, in what ways does it enhance information processing of, uh, of various sorts? Okay, so 
the third one would be, yeah, you can't um, openly and freely talk about your own experiences without losing credibility. Uh, like, you may not believe these, but I mean, we know of several, you know, very prestigious labs in, uh, in academia. Um, like, I'm talking like really famous, like labs, <laughs> I'm not going to name them, <laughs> but that we know for a fact that if you join, you know, such psychedelic research labs, Part of the policy is that you're not supposed to actually talk about your own psychedelic experiences with your colleagues, which, yeah, I mean, I just wanted you to kind of like notice how insane of a policy that is. If you actually care about the truth, like it just <laughs> sounds completely outlandish, um, really, really, yeah, out there. Uh, then uh, applying standard tests designed for and calibrated with sober people. I mean, like, what is the point of applying an IQ test to somebody on ketamine? Like, yeah, it's not really actually designed for for that purpose um and the phenomenology tends to be focused on semantic content i mean if you look at the yeah mystical experiences questionnaire there's others and i'm sure this is improving over time with better better scales but you will have kind of like a lot of items about like oh i felt like everything was one or my environment uh internal and external environment they merged um things are kind of like describing the 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 semantic content of the experience not actually the texture of it, which is actually where I think like a more scientific rendition uh, will happen. And finally, there's a, a lot of emphasis on predictive code, uh, predictive machine learning. In other words, it's kind of like, hey, can we take this neuroimaging data set and predict whether the person is tripping or not without necessarily uh, trying to understand um, like in what ways uh, this is insightful. So. Uh, yes, when you have kind of a machine learning uh, algorithm that can, you know, disentangle two populations, you're proving that the variance is there. Like you're proving that there is information, but you're, it's not necessarily insightful, right? Like it's not actually telling you what the differences are because oftentimes it's very hard to interpret kind of like a very a black box uh, machine learning algorithm. So in contrast, you know, our approach is to design experiments specifically for psychedelic states of consciousness in a sense, um, taking advantage of what we know, you know, from experience and from talking to very smart people who are really acquainted with these states, what would be interesting to look for, uh, essentially. Uh, second is kind of like, okay, we narrow down the search space with a high quality phenomenology. We assume information processing advantages and then go look for them. So it's kind of like, okay, that's hopefully where the juicy things, uh, the juice is going to be essentially like in what ways this is actually conferring you a useful way of processing information that you may not have uh, in, in, under normal conditions. Then focusing on the phenomenal character rather than the intentional content. So don't tell us you saw a dragon. Tell us what the wallpaper symmetry groups of the, you know, the surface of the dragon, of the scales of the dragon was. I mean, I think that's much more relevant, you know, scientific information. Um, and then uh, algorithmic reduction, what I was describing, uh, is agnostic about atomistic reduction. Like we're not assuming a particular metaphysics, um, quite on the contrary, like we're remaining completely agnostic about it, but we're trying to find kind of ways of breaking down the experience such that, you know, when you combine the basic elements, you get the full depth of it. And finally, yeah, emphasis on explanatory statistical models, models that are transparent so like we may miss out on some you know percentage points of uh, variance explained but the models are highly interpretable so they actually tells us something significant about you know the brain the nervous system um and how it interfaces with experience so uh with that you know <laughs> I, I would kind of like narrow all of these uh down to say uh it's really important to take phenomenology seriously and that you don't understand something until you can parameterize it. And like, that is kind of like the, 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 the huge challenge here, right? It's like, how do you parameterize a psychedelic experience? And, um, you know, okay, the algorithmic reduction is like one like attempt at doing that. It's like, okay, let's break it down into these subcomponents. Now, kind of like, let's go further. Let's actually try to really break down the subcomponents into parameters that we can actually quantify. So that's kind of a, the, the whole philosophy and, and background uh, for what I'm about to share. Um, so the first stop, uh, which is essentially the lowest hanging fruit. I mean, admittedly, this is kind of like, okay, the, the, the simplest of the effects to study is uh, tracer, tracer effects. 
these images are from the uh, subjective uh, effect index from, you know, where I said there's kind of like 70 different effects and they classify tracers as like one of those effects. Although, of course, from our point of view, they're like much more significant. They're like really, really foundational, foundational of an effect. Um, the prior art, I mean, as far as we know, it, of all the literature kind of like looking at psychedelic tracers, the only one that has ever tried to do anything like parametric is this uh, study from 2011 uh, called Visual Trails to the Dorsal Perception Open Periodically, where, yeah, I mean, basically they asked participants who had taken LSD in the past, and then they showed them uh, videos uh, of what we call, we will I will describe, it's called a, a strobe effect, although they don't distinguish between types of tracers, so they just call it trails. Uh, but essentially, this is kind of, you take like snapshots of your experience, kind of like um, uh, pictures, uh, you know, like uh, you're taking pictures of your experience and you're just like kind of like letting them there frozen, uh, decay slowly. And you can change, I mean, the one parameter that we're looking at is like, what is the frequency with which you take these snapshots uh, that get kind of like frozen in space? And, uh, and they found that Consistently, you know, LSD users would describe the images that were between 15 and 20 hertz as the most LSD-like. And like, okay, yeah, that's fascinating insight. It seems like LSD has a sort of visual frequency. It has a, a flickering frequency of, yeah, let's say 15 hertz. Okay, that's really useful information, very interesting finding. But from our point of view, it's not detailed enough because, I don't know, if you've actually experience these things <laughs> you will you know easily remember like yeah it's not only that you know tracers are actually a lot more complicated and bizarre than just kind of snapshots in space so what are they um well the yeah you have to essentially realize that yeah tracers are drug dependent and dose dependent and that there are multiple effects i mean like here just kind of like a, a sample of the sort of things that can happen in your visual field if you if you experience tracers so um with that uh we essentially yeah get at um the actual kind of like a research that we uh, are conducting and the the all of the preliminary results that i'm going to be talking about today uh will can be found um in this paper, uh, you can find it on quality computing. It's uh, modeling psychedelic tracers with QRI psychophysics toolkit, the tracer replication tool. And uh, <laughs> I just uh, spilled some coffee, sorry. <laughs> and uh, I will walk you through essentially all of these effects. And towards the end, you will be able to interpret kind of this like very information dense picture that is uh, uh, here. Okay, so, uh, okay, uh, first of all, uh, the reason why tracers are so significant, as I understand it, um, is one of the things that I wrote in that, that paper is, yeah, I mean, essentially, we think that the artifacts of perception in alien state spaces of consciousness are not noise. You know, they provide, provide hints for how normal experience is constructed. And, uh, you know, this is something that you can really notice if, like, you, you meditate on it, if you, if you pay attention to it. But, like, I would essentially make the claim that your experience is in a sense, constructed as a layering process where there is essentially a model of the world that you're constantly updating and that is constantly fading. And essentially, the model of the world that you have is exactly this homeostasis point of kind of the, the fading and the updating process. And in a sense, you're constantly kind of like adding information to it and it's slowly vanishing at the same time. Uh, it seems that a very key component of the way in which your world is constructed is through patterns of rhythmic feedback dynamics, essentially. And psychedelics might be messing up with that system. Okay, so kind of like within that framework. Um, and uh, what we came up with was essentially this, uh, this uh, tool. One way of describing it conceptually is as kind of the... Uh, the Photoshop of visual tracers, you know, it's kind of like, yes, okay, like the, 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 the previous paper from 2011, uh, they have one parameter, um, whereas we are in a sense kind of creating these like highly detailed way of editing the properties of a visual tra uh, tracer. And in the process of doing that, we actually developed a, a lot of highly detailed vocabulary to talk about each of the components of, of the tracers. So let me walk you through through that. 
So the first is uh, trail effects. Uh, a lot of people will actually just use the term trail and tracer interchangeably, uh, but not us. We actually uh, distinguish between them. So tracer effect in our vocabulary is the very high level construct of any persistence of vision effects. So all of the following effects are tracer effects. Within tracer effects, <laughs> the trails is essentially the simplest case, which is a kind of this like smooth decay function. Um, and even that uh, has like two key parameters. The first one is intensity, kind of like the you can compare the two columns. Uh, essentially how bright this kind of a smooth, uh, smooth decay is. And the second is persistent, essentially how long it lasts. And uh, these are like different things, right? Like you can have like a very faint trail that lasts forever, or you can have like a really strong trail that like fades really quickly. And, and different drugs will have like very different effects here. Um, okay, the second one is a strobe effect. So the, the simplest way of thinking about this effect is imagining that you're kind of in a dark room and somebody brought a strobe, a strobe light, right? So it's like, if you're dancing, you will see kind of these like, you know, snapshots <laughs> kind of like lingering in, 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 in space. Uh, so something like that seems to be going on on psychedelics. Uh, essentially, you kind of like get this flickering frequency and every time the flickering frequency happens, there's kind of like a snapshot of the entirety of your world model gets taken and it kind of like lingers there. So, uh, but it remains static. It doesn't capture the movement element. It just captures kind of the, the position. Uh, so that's, yeah, that's a, a really important one. And in retrospect, the strobe effect is what the previous study was actually looking at, not tracers in general. Uh, then we have replay effect, which is subtly different, but this difference is really significant. I mean, essentially the replay effect is not kind of like taking snapshots of like what was happening, it's rather kind of like replaying what happened, but with a delayed kind of like uh, delay, I guess, like period. So essentially um, you have kind of this uh, overlay of the same movie in kind of like a loop but where every time you loop it, it fades a little bit. Now, I should also clarify that the same two parameters for trails, which is persistence and intensity, also apply to replay and also apply to strobes. So in all of the cases, you, you will have to modulate those two parameters. And again, you could have like very faint, but very long lasting replay effects and vice versa. Uh, and that is different from the frequency parameter, which is the one that a uh, I'm actually showing in, in the screen, uh, which is essentially modulated by the time gap in between the replay, uh, the replays of, of, of the events. Then you have um, these thing, uh, essentially envelopes. So one of the things that makes, um, you know, a piano sound different than a flute sound different than a guitar. Um, one of the things is, you know, the distribution of the amplitudes of each of the harmonics, which is one of the things that distinguishes instruments. But the other thing that distinguishes instruments is what is called the envelope of it. And uh, that's oftentimes broken down or parameterized by attack, decay, sustain, and release. So if you look at kind of like how loud a piano note sounds, you will notice that it has kind of like less sharp of an attack than for example, um, I think like I think the other way around, like a, a, a piano has a sharp attack, whereas like violin doesn't. It's something like that. So essentially, how quickly you know the 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 loudness of the note rises and how quickly it decays tells you it's kind of part of the signature of what the 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 kind of instrument it is. And likewise, it, it seemed to us that kind of this you know both the strobe and the replay effects have kind of an envelope to them that uh they don't necessarily come all at once they kind of like have like this like smoothing envelope on top of it and um that you can have like a drug that has like a very sharp attack for example and that may have kind of like a an inherent uh spikiness to it in a way or you can have a drug with a very smooth attack and that might feel kind of like very creamy in in a way um and um, 
So that's kind of, yeah, another very important aspect of uh, trace, uh, tracer effects. Uh, and then we get into kind of like even more detailed. It's like, okay, those were some of the basic effects. And then we have what we call the modifiers. And among the modifiers, and I'm just going to talk about uh, a couple of them, we have a pulse and color pulsing. So this is an example of, okay, like 26 hertz strobe. But then also we have a 13 hertz color pulse. And essentially the color pulse, what it means is that whatever you know, lingering image you have uh, in the strobe, uh, it will be flickering and changing color at a certain frequency. And, and you can you know, reason that like the, the frequency at which the flickering uh, is happening in the strobe image can be different than the strobe frequency itself, right? Like those are completely different parameters and you can uh, change one uh, while keeping the other the same. Um, and, uh, and this actually turns out to be really important uh, for distinguishing between DMT and 5-MeO DMT, although I think I actually have a slide for that. So I'll, I'll talk about it in more depth in a, in a second. Um, okay, so <laughs> all of that is kind of like, okay, we parameterized all of these effects. Um, now for further context, okay, like we, I have to make it really clear, like we haven't actually given substances to people ourselves. So like we, we don't have that capacity uh, and we're not even promoting people take these substances in the list. Uh, all that we did was essentially construct this tool and put it online and then put a disclaimer saying, hey, like if you're intending to con you know consume like LSD in the future or something like that, like, you know, feel free to drop us a, a data point um, for, for pilot data. And of course, like, you know, I should be very candid here. For that reason, actually, these findings are not currently publishable. But the objective uh, here is to kind of like generate enough pilot data to show really strong effect sizes that then we can take with essentially a lab that does have the ability to conduct these uh, studies in a, yeah, you know, rigorous controlled fashion and give them the tool. So essentially, I guess, uh, I probably should have said this earlier, but one of the things that we are trying to, in a sense, position ourselves as, is as kind of a, a research group that is generating these very useful tools that hopefully they will become very widely used in academia. It's kind of like the, the, the long-term objective. So, but we do have data so far, again, but it was, yeah, it's, you, you should think of it as like pilot data there's no way for us to confirm the, the drugs and the doses that people were taking. So take all of the following with a grain of, uh, grain of, salt, uh, grain of salt. So first of all, we have a HPPD. So I reached out to some uh, uh, you know, Reddit groups and forums uh, of people who suffer from HPPD. For those who don't know, essentially this is kind of a persistent long-term alteration to your visual perception based on like some really intense experience that you had in the past, usually uh, some kind of like bad trip uh, or yeah, strong hallucinatory experience. And, um, and essentially what we found is that by and large, HPPD effects tend to be really simple. Like if anything, they, they're kind of like low dose, very generic, uh, indescript. They're not kind of like characteristic of any particular drug. And uh, to a first approximation, they're like very similar to cannabis. Uh, essentially, like somebody who has like HPPD from LSD will have the sort of perceptual alterations of a high dose cannabis, which is essentially uh, a very smooth trail that tends to be fairly faint, although it can last quite a long time. So that's kind of like the characteristics of, yeah, essentially uh, HPPD. Uh, but then also we have um, uh, THC kind of like behaves in the same way. Okay, like second preliminary result is psychedelics tend to have strong replay and strobe effects. Uh, and this seems to be the case for pretty much every psychedelic. Like uh, people consistently use the trace, the, the tra sorry, consistently use the strobe and the replay. So they may use only one or the other, but like that's usually they will use at least one of them. Um, and uh, for example, uh, it, it seems to be the case that each psychedelic has an approximate kind of like main frequency range for these effects. So this is just an example, but like 2CB seems to have approximately kind of like a 12 to 13 frequency strobe and replay effects. Uh, and it almost kind of like doesn't matter whether it's strobe or replay, it tends to be the same frequency for, for uh, any given psychedelic. Uh, 
Um, so yeah, okay, so that's an important, of course, we look forward to actually, you know, confirming it in, in, in a lab, but this is, you know, a, a, a pilot result so far. Then we have uh, psychedelics tend to have strong, uh, this is the same. Okay, this is, I'm just, uh, I was just comparing 2CB with a DMT. Like, okay, like DMT is higher frequency, <laughs> for example. Uh, yeah, the DMT 20 milligrams, it, it happens. So that's actually what you experience on DMT, which, yeah, I mean, people say, are the visuals that 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 you see online for DMT realistic? Like, is it really that extreme? And the answer is no. It's way more extreme, <laughs> way more extreme than like any depiction that you will see. But essentially, yeah, the, the twenty milligrams here kind of like uh, illustrates a little bit like what starts to happen at high doses. Um, uh, MDMA and five MeO DMT uh, seems to have uh, characteristically creamy envelope effects. Uh, I, I actually suspect that a um, positive hedonic tone intrinsically has to do with creamy envelopes. That in a sense, if you're taking MDMA, one of the things that actually makes MDMA so pleasant is that the overlay of your experience with itself uh, happens with us in a smooth way. And because it's smooth, it will essentially... Um, take the edge off, it will uh, uh, soften the edges of your experience, and it will work in practice as a broad spectrum dissonance filter. <laughs> so, uh, I mean, all of this connects with the symmetry theory valence, a lot of the theories that PRI of like what actually pleasure and pain are. But essentially, we, we suspect that uh, smooth envelopes matter quite a lot. And I mean, yeah, next time you uh, drink alcohol, for example, I, I would claim that actually, you know, the manifestation may not be visual, but like the reason why alcohol is pleasant is actually because it's generating this like smooth envelope in the way it modifies the feedback dynamics in your experience, um, which yeah, essentially gets rid of the internal dissonances. So anyway, that's, that's just kind of an exciting uh, aside. And then uh, number four, uh, I, I find this really significant myself. I mean, I think this is very clarifying for the distinction between DMT and, and 5-MeO, but essentially we found that 5-MeO uh, DMT after images uh, are similar to DMT when it comes to the frequencies and the intensity, like how long the, you know, the persistence, like many of the parameters are very similar. I mean, we're talking about like very high frequencies. We're talking about like 30 to 40 Hertz. So like it's really fast flickering with both of these substances, but there's a huge distinction, which is, on DMT, you actually get color pulsing effects, but not on 5-MeO. Um, and I think like, okay, this is a low level effect, right? Like very, very basic perceptual effect is like, do you get af positive and negative after images or only positive after images? If that is not happening, essentially you're missing out a source for the introduction of information. So in a sense, it may actually average out your, 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 your after images and make them converge towards a fixed point as opposed to something chaotic and fractal. So NFS to me uh, is one of the, the findings that, that I think it's most important to replicate because it might be straight away, like have a lot of explanatory power. Um, and yeah, I mean, like as a broad, you know, uh, observation, uh, yeah, I mean, pilot data seems to be consistent with uh, anecdotal data so far. I mean, you have things such as like, yeah, people, you know, LSD replications, uh, look kind of like that, whereas DMT you know, like look like that. And yeah, I mean, essentially the, the, the flickering frequency and the after image color uh, changes and so on, all of them seem consistent with uh, anecdotal data, which I found really, really exciting. Um, okay, here are some applications. I actually expect there to be many more applications to the tracer tool, but this is just kind of like a few uh, that we came up with. So first of all, a heliometer. Uh, this, this is actually just like one feature that will go into QRI's hyometer. <laughs> uh, essentially, like you replicate the tracer and we can tell you, okay, what drug did you take likely and what dose? Because like, yeah, if you're experiencing something like on the right, right? Like you probably took like quite a high dose to get like that level of persistence and, and flickering frequency. But uh, we're going to combine these with other features, kind of like, okay, like what is the threshold for symmetry detection and et cetera, et cetera. Essentially, it has to be like a multi parameter model to estimate actually how high you are. But this is a very important data point. Um, it, I should also mention there is the complication that some people may be really high, but not have like strong visual effects. So it's just one one feature. I don't want to claim that this is like 
the one feature you have to use to quantify, you know, level of highness, but it's an important one. It's an important one. Second one is quantify the synergy between drugs. So essentially, if you have two, two drugs with uh, characteristic frequencies, uh, let's say 2CB and LSD, uh, if you take them together, um, question, like, do you just get kind of the overlap between the two? Or do you get kind of like something that is less than the overlap? Or do you get something that is more? Something that actually you, you need to kind of like add extra effects, which we might describe as a, a synergy effect. Or perhaps like even weirder, do you get some kind of harmonization between the two effects? Uh, like something that is different than the sum of the parts, but also moving kind of like in, a, in another direction, such as like making them more consonant with each other. So that, that's an empirical question. And I mean, so far we definitely don't have enough data and we definitely don't have enough combination data to really have like any opinion on this. But I will say that I strongly predict <laughs> that the combination of dissociatives and psychedelics will show up as profoundly synergistic in that like, if you just add up the visual trails or the visual tracers of 50 milligrams of ketamine together with like, uh, you know, 100 micrograms of LSD, the resulting effects will be, you know, like five times more intense than just the linear addition between the two. So that's that's a prediction I'm making that can be quantified with this tool. Uh, and finally, um, this this is kind of like a complicated concept, but like broadly speaking, I think we can probably also estimate the valence uh, that you're experiencing based on the quality of the tracer. I mean, and, and broadly speaking, I would predict that uh, the sort of like patterns to the left will generally characterize a more anxiety-driven, dysphoric uh, psychedelic state, whereas pattern to the right might be a kind of like more pleasant, uh, stable, um, kind of settled psychedelic state um, for, for deep reasons that I, I'm not going to go into, but I'm, I'm happy to answer in uh, the Q&A. Uh, so just to kind of like summarize uh, for this tool, we want to essentially, yeah, create indicators for like when it would be a good idea to abort the trip, if, if at all, uh, create novel biomarkers, um, discover synergy between substances or, or prove that there is subjective uh, synergy and deliver more precise doses. That's uh, all, kind of like, okay, like, do you need a booster, for example? That, that was something that we might be able to answer for psychedelic therapy. Um, and also, it's kind of like a very exciting prospect is like, okay, we have like these very reliable effects, like, okay, like 12 hertz on 2CB. All of a sudden, we have something kind of like a target to... to to um to try to identify in neuroimaging data, so that's that's something exciting. We definitely have not done this in the least, but I think it's it's doable. On on the flip side, we also have kind of this like hope that we may be able to kind of uh, reverse engineer the circuitry of the visual system by essentially thinking like, okay, in what what kind of circuit has a failure mode that if you over-energize it in this particular way you get, you know, like strobe effects. And what kind of circuit, if you energize it in a different way, you get kind of, you know, the DMT flickering effects. So essentially we think that you, you can probably use this in order to reverse engineer what are the circuits underlying visual perception. And kind of like as the third <laughs> example, I think this can actually function as a bridge between neuroimaging and circuit, like theoretical circuits. That uh, if we infer that, okay, like this kind of flickering frequency on 2CB really entails that we have like, you know, something that looks like the silver tone <laughs> 14, you know, 84 reverb, reverb circuit. Um, all of a sudden we have like something to find in the neuroimaging data. It's like, oh, like if this is the kind of reverb circuit that we have based on the, the, the tracer effects, what would that look like in neuroimaging? So... I think like that's a very exciting prospect and I don't really see a way of doing it without a way of parameterizing experience like what we're doing with this tool. So as far as I know, this would be kind of like a, a novel way of bridging these completely two um, ways of looking at a nervous system. Um, and yeah, I guess like to, to kind of like quickly go over the, the first image that you saw, uh, this kind of like encapsulates a lot of the effects that we identified. So first of all, THC, very faint trail effect. Uh, 2CB, you get essentially uh, both replay and strobe effects at around 12 hertz. 
Uh, DMT, you get very strong color pulsing effects. Both uh, strobe and both reverb, uh, strobe and replay, both at like around 30 hertz. And on Fabio Mio DMT, you get like monochrome, essentially no color pulsing, but also strobe and replay at around like 30 to 40 hertz. Um, and okay, like I just wanted to kind of like conclude the presentation with, um, okay, like what's next? Well, okay, like an exciting thing. Actually, there's like a number of projects, but I'm just gonna briefly talk about like one of the projects that we're gonna be also doing this year that I'm really excited by, which is uh, actually has like a precedent also in a Quilio Computing post. Uh, actually, the first post on Psychophysics, uh, I'm, you know, finally going to realize <laughs> my dream of actually studying this, uh, you know, formally, which is a uh, uh, texture, texture perception. I mean, that's something that I find really fascinating that, you know, there is like, if you look at this texture on, you know, 200 micrograms of LSD, it would look really different, right? But how do you describe the way in which it looks different? Like, we don't really have the words or... For, for that matter, we don't really have, or most people don't have, kind of like a, a, a paradigm for how to describe textures. But but get, well, okay, so the, with this one, actually, there's also a, a, an, a, an object hidden in it. Um, I'm, I'm actually joking, this is just a, <laughs> a bundle of cells, but I just wanted to think that there was an object in there. Uh, part of the dream here is that uh, we will be able to, to hide secret images on psychedelics, that in a sense... Uh, uh, you will only be able to see an image in a texture if you're on a, on a psychedelic, if we deeply understand how psychedelics modify texture perception. Um, but yeah, I mean, essentially the paradigm that we are very excited to use is uh, this whole area that is called texture analysis and synthesis, and especially one model that is called the steerable pyramid developed by uh, Portilla and Simoncelli. Uh, you know, the, it, it might seem kind of old, 1999, but honestly, I, I think it's still kind of state of the art for one very big reason, which is it is completely, completely interpretable and transparent. So there is a lot of like modern neural network, convolutional neural network analysis of texture, what's called a style transfer. Uh, and also, you know, deep dream, you could kind of like put it in the same category. But the problem with style transfer techniques uh, in neural networks is that they are very hard to interpret. Like you don't actually get a, a, a meaningful summary of what the texture is, is just a method for replicating the texture. But with this algorithm, you actually get a breakdown of the texture into a meaningful statistical description. So the way in which this works essentially is you can analyze a texture like the input image here to the, to the left, and it will transform that texture into a series of histograms or matrices, which is like the images on the, on the right, and then it will take uh, a random image uh, and, in a sense, like in this iterative fashion, try to make it conform to the statistical summary of the original texture. And as you can see, you know, the texture that gets generated, it actually looks pretty similar to, to the original. I mean, it may miss out on some of the symmetries, some of the features, but by and large, in your peripheral vision, they, they look almost indistinguishable. So the fact that they look almost indistinguishable is actually indicating that yes, it is capturing the essential statistical distributions that your peripheral visual field is capable of, of, uh, of distinguishing. Uh, and here are just kind of like some additional examples. Uh, we're playing with this, with this yeah, algorithm. I find it really exciting. Uh, you give us a texture and we can generate, you know, arbitrary amounts of something that looks very similar to it. Uh, and again, it's not perfect, but for the purpose of like, the peripheral visual field is really good. And then there is this uh, paradigm developed by uh, uh, J, uh, Benjamin Ballas, where essentially he, he were, was considering like, well, we can probably quantify how much each of those matrices matter, each, how much each of those statistical features are actually important to create an indistinguishable texture um, by, in a sense, not constraining, not using them as constraints. So in each of these pictures, in a sense, you get a uh, replication of the texture, but without one of the categories of statistical features uh, taken into account. So essentially you have a little bit of a breakdown and full set would be, you know, with a full set of statistical features being, being satisfied. Uh, but the ones in between are kind of like missing some, some of those statistical features. Uh, here's just one more, one more example, for example, you know, magnitude correlation, 
you're clearly missing out something really essential, right? Like because it doesn't cluster in the same way, you don't get the same partitions. Uh, and marginals, clearly, you know, you're missing something really fundamental there. Um, but anyway, uh, with this paradigm, essentially what you can do is um, an odd one out paradigm where like you have a left, uh, sorry, three images, and they ask you which one is the, the different one. And essentially what we can do is two of those images are essentially cutouts from the original texture. And the last image is one that uh, is being generated by the algorithm. And essentially by modulating which statistics we do enforce and which ones we don't enforce, we can tell which statistics actually matter for the for, from the point of view of noticing a difference in these textures. Uh, and essentially doing this, we will be able to say which statistical features uh, are perceptible on psychedelics and maybe which ones are more or less perceptible on psychedelics. And uh, with that, I mean, one really cool application of this is that we will be able to generate metamers of texture. In a sense, textures that are indistinguishable in one state of consciousness, but they are distinguishable in a different state of consciousness. So it's kind of like similar to like how somebody who's colorblind, um, they can't see that there's like the number 74 in there, um, hidden. And that is because, you know, the distribution of, of uh, colors in both the 74 and the background is the same for somebody who's colorblind. So essentially that's metamers. They look the same for people who are colorblind. They look different for people who are not colorblind. So in what ways are we colorblind that when you take a psychedelic, you stop being colorblind? So this is what it would be answering. And, uh, it, you know, the final output would be something like this, where, you know, if you're on a psychedelic, um, you can see that change in the texture. But if you're on, and, you know, you're not on any psychedelic, it just looks like the same texture over and over again. So that would be kind of the a really exciting application. Uh, and with that, yeah, I just want to kind of a quick acknowledgement uh, to Lawrence Wu for, yeah, the essentially software development on the Tracer tool, Andrew Zuckerman for, yes, I, a lot of the psychophysics slides, uh, ideation and operational support, and uh, Daniel uh, Cleland, who's uh, joined us just recently, uh, and he's working on the Texture tool uh, software development. And uh, yeah, that's it. Uh, so yeah, uh, thank you so much. And uh, oh yeah, just one one last thing, which is um, if this really excites you, if you find this very appealing and you have kind of um, useful skills for this project, we will be hiring in the next uh, several months for this project in addition to for other projects. But this is one of the projects for which we're actually doing uh, a full full-time hire, like somebody who will be working on this full-time. So uh, yeah, if, if you're really passionate about this, have, you know, software developed uh, and, uh, you know, kind of um, uh, some like experimental psychology background, definitely reach out. We would uh, love to collaborate. So, yeah, with that, uh, thank you so much.